0: You are listening to a recording of a MEDACT webinar, the arms industry in the era of COVID-19, lessons for the future. The webinar took place on the 29th of April 2020. We unfortunately lost internet connection with Hilary Wainwright towards the end of her segment, so we have taken this bit of the event out of the recording. We thank you for your understanding and we hope that you enjoy the podcast. So I think we'll start now. I think there's enough people more people might continue to drop in um, as we're going. So, um, yeah, thank you very much to all of you who've come to this webinar on the arms trade in the context of COVID-19. Before we start today, I'm just going to introduce MEDACT and the topic briefly. And while I do, please feel free to say hello and introduce yourself in the chat box, which hopefully you'll be able to see. Um, If you can't see the chat box, you should find the button down at the bottom of your screen, and you can open it that way. Um, So, my name is Reema Buhaya, and I'm the peace and security campaigner at MEDAPT. As many of you will already know, MEDAPT is an organisation that works with health workers to challenge the root causes of global and public health inequalities on issues ranging from climate change, nuclear weapons, economic injustice and migration we work with health workers in the uk and globally to do research and evidence-based campaigning and for years have campaigned for an end to trident and the arms trade due to its fueling of wars and armed conflict from across the world which lead to death injury and as many of you know long-term public health and economic instability issues um just as an example in yemen alone the ongoing war um, that began in 2015 has directly led to the deaths of over 100,000 people alongside over 85,000 deaths that are indirectly related to the war the war and regular bombings which have included 120 attacks on health facilities and health workers has had a devastating impact on public health and sanitation infrastructure which has resulted in outbreaks of disease such as cholera and dengue fever there's also widespread famine in yemen with um, that it's reported that I think 20 million people have faced food insecurity with 10 million at the brink of famine Um, of course as many of you know the UK plays a significant role in the arms trade that facilitates this kind of destruction and devastation that we see Um, it was reported last year that the UK had reclaimed its place as the world's second largest exporter of weapons with the majority of weapons being exported to the Middle East This was around the same time that a UK court found the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia used in the war in Yemen to be unlawful. And despite the coronavirus pandemic and our foreign secretary, Dominic Raab, who was also acting prime minister for a while, um, showing support for an immediate global ceasefire, it's reported that BAE Systems in the UK sent one of their regular weekly shipments of weapons to Saudi Arabia last week, and also I'm seeing reports that they've sent that same shipment today to Saudi Arabia. Um, So, a number of um, arms companies, including Airbus, Babcock and Rolls-Royce, have been granted contracts by the government to convert production to much-needed ventilators. And so, I thought that now would be, you know, as good a time as any and potentially, you know, a very, very useful time to talk about the possibilities of a long-term move away from destructive industries such as arms and weapons, and fossil fuels, because um, I know many of you in the chat will be very interested in that too. The industries that support sustainable peace and public health. So with that in mind, I'm really excited to introduce our panel of brilliant speakers who are experts in the area. Um, So so we've got um, Professor Andy Haynes with us, who is uh, a Professor of Environmental Change and Public Health at LSHTM, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a founding member of MEDACT in what was then known as the Medical Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. We've also got with us Hilary Wainwright, who's the founding editor of Red Pepper magazine and co-author with Dave Elliott of The Lucas Plan, A New Trade Unionism in the Making, and she's also a Fellow of the Transnational Institute. We've got Phil Asquith, who's joining us today, who's a chartered engineer and former chairman of the Lucas Aerospace Combine at the Burnley site and has been closely involved with the Lucas Plan since its conception. Um, we've got Stuart, uh, Dr. Stuart Parkinson, who's the Executive Director of Scientists for Global Responsibility, and his career path, interestingly, has taken him from engineering in the arms industry to climate change research, and then broader science and technology issues, including on arms conversion. And finally, but you know, last but not least, um, is Sam Mason, who is the policy officer at the Public and Commercial Services Union, PCS, um, covering climate justice, trade and digitalization and automation issues. She's also a member of the new Lucas Plan project and leads on the Just Transition Working Group strand. Um, so just to repeat some technical points, if you do have any technical problems, um, please write them, pre- please write into the chat box below and my colleagues Ian and Ben who are here will help you out. Um, We'll move on to the Q&A session, the question and answer session, in the final half hour of the webinar from 7pm, hopefully. So if you have any questions that you think about during any of the talks that are going to follow, please do write them into the Q&A box. And then once we reach the Q&A session, I'll I'll pick them out. Um, Yeah, So we're going to hear from Stuart first, so please do take it away, Stuart. Thanks very much.
1: Great, okay. Um, I'm Stuart Parkinson of Scientists for Global Responsibility. Thank you very much to Medact for organizing this. Um, I'm going to start off um, talking about industrial conversion in general and then um, a bit of history and a bit of um, specifics around the current situation. So, um, industrial conversion is is very much in vogue at the moment. For example, we're seeing shifts from fossil fuels to renewable energy, from energy-hungry technologies to energy-efficient ones, from human-controlled technology to computer-controlled robots. Um, Some of these things are taking place in response to environmental problems like climate change, in proposals like the Green New Deal. Some of these are being pursued um, mainly for economic reasons. but one shift we haven't heard much about until the COVID-19 crisis was arms conversion. And now there are media stories about arms companies retooling to make ventilators to help um, intensive care, um, ventilators to help intensive care patients breathe more easily and also using 3D printers to um, make personal protective equipment. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about this um, current situation, but first I, I want to add just a small bit of jargon and then talk about a little bit of history around arms conversion issues. So the bit of jargon is that there are basically two types of industrial conversion. One is sort of company level or factory level conversion, um, where, as his name suggests, um, it takes place at a single company or, or plant. Um, the other type is economic conversion, which is a shift at a, a larger scale, a regional economy or a, or a national economy. Some of the best recent examples of arms conversion come from the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s. Um, and Here uh, we saw reductions, sometimes very large reductions in national sp- military spending, coupled with um, company mergers, greater capitalization of, of manufacturing, And um, this led to falls in employment in the arms industry. Some governments, um, for example, Germany, ran specific conversion programs with individual companies. And there are a few particular successes. For example, um, MAK, which was a tank manufacturer, converted to build locomotives, train locomotives. Um, Airbus helicopters um, moved from 100% military production to 80% civilian production. Um, these took about 10 years for the, these transitions to take place, so it was no small um, task and, and, and not instant. Um, and the successes were due to a combination of, of regional or national governments working with companies themselves and with trade unions. Um, There are some similar partnerships that currently operate in the UK to deal with fluctuations in military spending leading to either job losses or in some cases job increases in the arms industry, so sometimes working in reverse. Um, But but some of these schemes um, have some useful lessons for arms conversion as well. Now the UK situation has been rather different. Um, In the UK we've seen economic conversion as as the main route and I'm going to give a couple of examples. Um, The first example is a national transition um, that we've seen since about 1985, and the late 80s in particular. And um, between 1985 and 1995, there was a large decline in jobs in the arms industry. Over a 1,000 direct jobs were lost in the industry. Um, And then in the 20 or um, so years since then, there's been another 20,000 jobs lost in in the sector. Um, But since about the year 2000, um, there's been a massive growth in jobs in the energy efficiency technologies and in renewable energy in the UK. And this is more than compensated for the losses in the arms industry. So to give you some of the latest figures from government and industry, the green industrial sectors in the UK, um, low carbon and renewable energy, um, currently employ about 215,000 people in the UK. Um, the biggest areas are, are energy efficiency products. Um, compare that with the arms industry, which now only has 135,000 direct jobs. Um, so you can see the, the green industries are about 60% bigger than the arms industry. Um, the second example I want to give is um, a transition in, in Humberside around um, the city of Hull. Um, now, in 2012, the BAE Systems factory there. Um, Um, shrank and um, 850 jobs were lost. In 2016-17 a new factory was founded called Hull Greenport which created about a thousand jobs in manufacturing, particularly um, making um, wind turbine blades for offshore wind farms around the UK. So there's there's been quite a transition and in both cases the jobs in the green sector have been larger than jobs lost in in the arms sector. Um, Another example is Lucas Plan but I'll let other people talk about that. Um, So now coming back to the present day um, and looking at what's happened as a result of Covid-19 activities in industry and what we're starting to see in Britain now is, is some company or factory conversions um, happening for medical equipment. Um, Now there are limited details so far. Um, It's hard to glean exactly what's going on, but there are some details in the public domain and and I'll let, this is what I've been able to um, gather from um, the evidence around. Um, So on ventilators, medical ventilators, which are complex machines as I say, needed to help um, intensive care patients breathe more easily. Fears of a national shortage led government to put out a call for engineering companies to help produce thousands of new ones. Um, so far, regulatory approval has has been given to one consortium um, called Ventilator Challenge UK. There are 29 engineering companies involved in this, including specialists in medical technology, car production, IT, aircraft, and arms. Um, seven of the companies involved in this are major producers of of arms and other military equipment. The coordination of this um, consortium is by a public body called the High Value Manufacturing Catapult, which is a nice snappy name. Um, Four sites have been chosen for production. Um, These include um, the Airbus site in Wales and Broughton in Wales. Um, None of the sites were producing military equipment Um, before this so strictly it's not arms conversion but it does involve as I say some arms companies. The trade unions have been heavily involved in the conversion work and the orders for this consortium are currently at a minimum of 15,000 ventilators so a a substantial number of units. And um, then there are some other bids from other companies, and one in particular I'll point to, which is still pending approval from the government, is from Babcock International, which is a leading UK arms company involved in in, um, the UK nuclear weapons program. Um, So, um, and then there are a a few other um, examples Um, for PPE. There are numerous UK arms companies involved. simply using 3D printers which are a new type of technology or fairly new type of technology to help produce plastic and metal components and they've been used to produce visors, um, face masks, um, Airco- Airbus, Babcock, BA systems have all um, been involved in that um, but this is a much smaller scale than the sort of things that they they usually make. Um, one other example is um, isolation pods for air ambulances, which Babcock has, has developed um, as well. So, um, the implications for future developments um, that I, I want to say a quick word about before we pass on to um, the other speakers. So, what the recent situation has shown is that the UK can do company-level industrial conversion involving arms companies when government companies and trade unions work together towards a common goal. And now for COVID-19, it's been on a small scale. The involvement of arms companies has been quite limited, Um, but such programs could and should be scaled up for tackling climate change, air pollution and other socially useful goals. Um, These these are the sort of initiatives that should be part of Green New Deal proposals, Um, and the involvement of arms companies has often been called called Green New Deal Plus. And then to coordinate this, it would be helpful if there was a specific government agency. Um, The name that's commonly used is Defense Diversification Agency, and that could help coordinate the process. And since pandemics and climate change are considered to be major threats in the government's national security risk assessment, these initiatives would have security benefits as well. So you can make a security argument for arms companies transitioning to to civilian technologies. Um, So I'll stop there um, and um, pass over to the next people.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Stuart. Um, So now we're just going to hear from Phil, who is an ex-chairman of the Lucas Aerospace Combine, as I said before, from the Brindley site. So yeah, Phil, if you want to take it over now. Thank
2: you. Okay, thank you, Reem. I've got a lot of ground to cover in a short time and it will sound a little like saying that Tolstoy's War and Peace was about Russians. So here we go. When we launched the plan in 1976, none of us ever dreamt that we would be speaking about it at conferences 40 years later. I'm sure the main reason the plan has retained its currency is that the problems which we were addressing in the 70s are essentially the same problems which confront us now, only writ much larger. And much more urgent. Originally entitled The Corporate Plan, the plan was compiled in 1975 by the Combine Shop Stewards Committee as a strategy to preempt the impending crises and job losses in Lucas Aerospace. The main objective of the plan was to protect defence workers' jobs by proposing the development and manufacture of socially useful products as an alternative to weapons in the declining defence sector. Lucas Aerospace itself employed about 18,000 mainly high-risk skilled workers at 14 sites around the UK and the Lucas Aerospace Combine, a grassroots organisation consisted of all blue and white collar trade unions and represented virtually the entire workforce up to a very senior level. The Combine itself was powerful industrially but proactive rather than reactive. And in fact, its approach has been described as by one of our speakers as a new trade unionism in the making. Without the Combine, there would have been no plan. So following its launch in 1976, the plan, to our surprise, became an international course celebre and enjoyed its 40th anniversary in 2016. That dates me. Uh, and uh, this was celebrated by a special conference organized by the new Lucas Plan Group. So how and why did the Lucas Plan begin? And why has it endured for over 40 years? Background is in the 1970s, job losses in British industry, including Lucas, were hemorrhaging for a variety of quite fundamental reasons, giving rise to the new phenomenon of structural unemployment. In addition, a new Labour government in 1974 was elected twice, pledged to defence cuts. So this compounded the prospect of job losses within Lucas Aerospace. The Combine Shops Shoes Committee considered various workers struggles and strategies to save jobs, such as nationalization, occupation, work in sittings, campaigns for the retention of the existing products, but none of those seemed appropriate to us. It seemed to us that struggles based on the continued manufacture of products that no one wanted were doomed to failure. And that was particularly true of the weapons industry. The Combine requested a meeting in November '74 with Tony Benn, the Secretary of State for Industry in the new Labour government to discuss, discuss defence cuts. Benn's advice was very clear that the Combine had time and therefore should plan alternative industrial strategies and products and to use the members' skills in the planning process. So after much discussion at the next Combine meeting, the way forward suddenly became clear. The Combine decided to draw up an alternative to the company's corporate plan independently. If defence workers' skills were no longer required to make weapons, they should be used to benefit society. This was consistent with decades of Labour Party policy and trade union policy, but no one had ever planned the nuts and bolts of the conversion process. This would be a plan to save jobs by making products to fulfill the unmet needs of society, products to be measured by their use value, not their exchange value. We talked of social profit from socially useful products. After all, the definition of profit on weapons contracts was purely political. We were aware that we were heading into uncharted waters. There were no union manuals and no precedents for alternative plans. Over a year we consulted the workforce and some sympathetic experts and academics, Andy being one of them. It was a long and strenuous process. However, there was a massive outpouring of creativity which resulted in dozens of alternative products in six product groupings, such as energy conservation, renewables, medical technology, and so on. Examples of the specific products proposed were, believe it or not then, hybrid car engines, a road rail vehicle, electric cars, wind turbines, solar technology, fuel cells, and microprocessors, which we now call chips. All look futuristic then, and the company tried to denigrate the plan by saying it was in the domain of the brown bread and sandals brigade, which made us laugh. The technology is every day now. So our members' technological forecasting was spot on, an endorsement of the bottom-up approach. So, as far as we knew, this was the first concrete alternatives set to arms production, the first time ever, and it helped to remove jobs from the disarmament debate. It's formed a major contribution to the international peace movement, which embraced the plan enthusiastically. and indeed the combine was nominated in 1979 for the Nobel Peace Prize, which we didn't get by the way. So the plan was not just about products, the plan was also challenging the way in which products are produced where skill and creativity are designed out of the production process. We proposed the reversal of this to human-centered production systems. It was axiomatic that we were challenging the misuse and abuse of science and technology. These are not a given. Their use is directed and for too long away from the socially useful economy. The plan also challenged design for built-in obsolescence, products designed to wear out prematurely, fueling a throwaway economy with all of the wastage of the planet's resources that that engenders. It was clear even then that a world economy based on endless growth could be not sustained by the earth. The international reaction to the plan was overwhelming and completely supportive. Combine reps have spoken at hundreds of meetings and conferences in the UK, America, Europe and Australia. Let me give you a typical newspaper quote, and believe it or not, This came from the Financial Times. The plan is one of the most advanced yet prepared in the UK by a group of shop stewards. One of the most radical plans ever drawn up by workers for their company. And this one sounds as though it's from a left wing publication, but I'll tell you the publication in a moment. The quote said, the document is clearly worth consideration by management where it demonstrates clearly that if managers don't carry out their jobs to the satisfaction of workers, then those same workers have the capability and know how to do it for them. Not from a left-wing publication, that was from industrial management in 1976, and that went down like a lead balloon in the board of Lucas Aerospace. There was a tidal wave of interest and support and there was one notable Canute-like exception, which was, in inverted commas, our side, the responsible National Trade Union officials and the Labour government. Fearful of the wave of grassroots, sorry, grassroots trade unionism at uh, the time, the Labour government entered into an unholy alliance with the company. They rejected the plan, despite the Labour Party conference having recently endorsed it unanimously. And the outcome was that they gave Lucas more taxpayers' money to destroy jobs, even though we've provided them with a blueprint that they've been asking us to do for years. In conclusion, did the plan succeed or fail? Well, on our side, the Labour government certainly failed, that's for sure. However, the plans made an enduring conversion, sorry, contribution to the arms conversion, environmental, and humanising technology the debates over 40 years. The workers who produced the bottom-up strategy were proven right. Management, Labour government and many of the trade union establishment were proven wrong or they didn't care and I make no apology for saying that. They all rejected the planned products such as hybrid engines, turbines, solar technology, all commonplace now and largely manufactured overseas and that sadly is the familiar story of British industry. Had the plan been accepted, we could have been manufacturing our own design of hybrid engines, wind turbines, and so on for years and enjoyed a couple of extra decades of lower CO2 emissions. But my final point is despite repeated threats by the company, there were no compulsory redundancies in Lucas Aerospace over the years of the plan campaign, which, after all, was the original objective of the plan to protect jobs. Thank you.
0: Amazing. Thank you, that Phil. That was really interesting and really interesting to hear what the reviews were in <laughs> um, not-so-sympathetic press as well. Um, so next up, we are going to hear from Professor Andy Haynes, who was also a medical advisor to the Lucas Aerospace um, com- the shop stewards um, and also is a professor at the LSHTM. So just going to pass over to you, Andy. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks very much, Shireen, for the introduction. So in the mid-1970s, I was a a young doctor working in Northwest London, part-time clinician, part-time researcher. And I was on the uh, Brent uh, Trades Council representative of the Medical Practitioners Union, where I heard a number of talks by Mike Cooley and Ernie Scarborough uh, who was chair of the combine committee at the time uh, and met uh, a number of those uh, speaking today and it was that really that i learned about this concept of uh, socially useful production and the, and the conversion of the arms industry to uh, more productive uses and i found that the combine committee really addressed many of the issues that preoccupied me then and today so i was concerned about the threat to survival posed by the nuclear arms race the waste of limited resources from excessive military spending, the specter of increasing unemployment for many workers, and of course the failure of conventional protest movements to influence many entrenched positions. And it seemed to me that the Combine Committee uh, outlined many of the potential solutions that people like me were looking for. The achievement of multiple benefits, meeting actual needs, providing fulfilling employment, breaking down the paternalistic management structures, and capitalizing on the creative talents of the workforce. As we've heard at at that time, climate change was not the pressing concern that it is today. But many of the solutions that were developed by the uh, Combine Committee were of contemporary relevance. Renewable energy, energy efficiency, and sustainable transport, to name but a few so i was immediately inspired by this vision really of a different way of organizing society and despite my inexperience Mike uh, Mike Cooley and i think Ernie as well asked me to be a kind of informal advisor to the combine committee on the potential to design innovative products to meet health needs i suspect that i learned in fact i'm sure i learned a great deal more from them than they learned from me but what really impressed me was how the Um, the Shop Stewards Committee drew up a very detailed plan, um, and they consulted very, very widely, as I'm sure Phil uh, will agree. So I think they sent out something like 12,000 questionnaires, something of that order. And so this wasn't a kind of ad hoc exercise. It was a very carefully planned exercise to capitalize on the extraordinary skills and talents of the Lucas Aerospace um, workforce, and to make a detailed analysis of the design, development, and production capabilities and activities of the various plants and how they could be converted to more socially productive um, uses. So they came up with 150 or so new products. Uh, Some of these were already being made in small volume by Lucas, some of them were totally new products. Um, And they include a very wide diversity of products, but amongst them there were medical devices. So at the time, for example, about 3000 people a year were dying in the UK because they couldn't access home dialysis. And the Lucas Aerospace uh, workers, um, there was a a program on TV at the time which really outlined the tragic loss of life that was occurring from these preventable deaths from renal failure. And so the the workforce is very much, um, uh, I think, catalyzed, their interest is very much catalyzed by that program. And they saw the potential for scaling up the production of home dialysis equipment. Other workers also developed portable life support system for use in ambulances, which of course we take for granted today, but at the time was absolutely uh, groundbreaking. And some of the health ideas were developed further in a consultative workshop, bringing together um, workers, the Lucas Aerospace Workers, independent advisors and health service users. For example, there's one very moving account of um, the development of a mobility aid for people with uh, spina bifida, young children with spina bifida called the Hobcart. And that was developed by an engineer called Mike Perry Evans. And he actually worked with the children with Spina Bifida. So I think it's the first time he'd actually worked with people who would directly benefit from his his work. And it was called the Hobcart. The the Australian Spina Bifida Association wanted to order about 2000 of them. But Lucas refused to manufacture them because they were not compatible with their then uh, product range. So there was a tremendous, uh, I think, um, flow of uh, innovation um, in from the Lucas uh, workforce. Many of the products had health implications. At the time, I thought of medical equipment in a rather narrow sense. But now I can see that many of the other products they proposed to develop had major implications for health, including renewable energy, heat pumps, hybrid en- engines, and so on, because they reduced greenhouse gas emissions and also uh, reduced air pollution which as we now know today is a major killer. So Lucas Aerospace uh, epitomized to me the defects of British industry which I think Phil has already alluded to. They were over dependent on arms expenditure funded by a plentiful supply of taxpayers money that was could be much better used to address other social priorities um, and there were deep and unproductive divisions between management uh, and the workforce. So I found this particularly galling, because it was very clear even to a rank outsider like myself that the workforce were much more knowledgeable, skilled and innovative than the managers. At the same time, it was also instructive to me to see that the trade union movement itself was not always supportive, as we heard from Phil, of the innovation and some found the disruption of their traditional and very reactive role uh, very challenging so let me conclude by a couple of other remarks so in 1979 i had the opportunity to go to california as a as a young researcher and in my spare time i had the opportunity to interact with the conversion group of the university of california nuclear weapons lab conversion project led by dave mcfadden and others and they've been working for several years towards the conversion of the lawrence livermore laboratory from weapons to non-weapons work and they're. Their belief was that the continuing nuclear arms research and development increased the risk of nuclear war and that the US had a responsibility in particular to take the initial steps to turn around the nuclear arms race. They actually made very good um, inroads into the new, uh, Lawrence Livermore workforce and they found actually a lot of uh, sympathy and support from within the Lawrence Livermore lab um, employees. And what was striking to me was that they uh, were actually very quite knowledgeable about the work of the Lucas Space Shop Stewards Combine Committee. I remember I was able to talk in some detail uh, to them about it, and spoke at a member at a a rally, um, a public rally, uh, supporting the whole conversion work. And it was very clear that the example, the constructive example of the Lucas Aerospace Shop Stewards Combine Committee, really resonated um, with them. We now know that these ideas, although they weren't fully taken up at the time, of course, they have endured, and in fact they are more timely than ever. And as we emerge from the shadow of COVID, as we will emerge over the next year or two, it's imperative that we do so with economic policies that protect and promote health. We've spent trillions of dollars and pounds trying to protect public health. And when we emerge from the COVID pandemic, it's crucial that we do so bearing health and environmental sustainability securely, putting it securely at the centre of the economic recovery package. And what's very clear, I think, from the historical example of the Lucas Aerospace Combine Shop Stewards Committee is that we have a, a, a tremendous and enduring example Of how our economy could foster workplace democracy address the need to build back bring back uh, skilled manufacturing, including the development of the circular economy, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing waste and reducing the vulnerability of vital supply chains to disruption, so bringing back much of that expertise much closer to home and supporting improved health and rapid decarbonization. So I see the post-COVID economic stimulus as a tremendous opportunity to scale up the Lucas vision, which inspired many of us many decades ago, but now adapted to a new generation and new challenges. Thank you very much.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Andy. I have to say, I I agree with a lot of what you've just said. So I'm hoping that we'll get some questions from people um, about your time, you know, working on conversion, particularly from a health perspective and medical perspective. Um, So thank you. And next we're hearing from Oh, okay, so (laughs) I've just been asked privately (laughs) to just let you know that there's uh, 75 people now in the call, which is really amazing, Um, really amazing to have that many people interested in the issue of arms conversion and and the arms industry moving forward, Um, and yeah, if people do have questions just a reminder that you've got the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen and you can just insert your question there, so we have a few questions in there and we'll get to that in the Q&A session but please do um, put your questions in there. Um, so yeah next up we've got Hilary Wainwright who is the founding editor of Red Pepper magazine and also co-author of the book The New the Lucas Plan so just to pass on to you Hilary thank you.
4: Great and Reema thanks so much for organising this meeting it's a really good initiative and also to see the frustrating thing about um, Zoom is that there are lots of good things about it but you can't see people and i can see in the list some really knowledgeable people as bruce kent you know who's in a way such an inspiring leader of cnd and and the whole disarmament movement internationally and many other people who also have a real expertise i hope we can encourage not just questions but also contributions because i think as i'm i mean this is a and stewart this is a time of opportunity as well as a time of Of tragedy. Um, So I wanted to pick up in a way on Phil's point where he says without the combine there would be no plan because um, I think we have to deal with the question of agency and power you know that that now in a way conversion the movement away from a low a high-carbon economy towards a low-carbon economy is sort of it's like it's hegemonic as people say in terms of ideas like um, the general secretary of the UN was recently saying that the recovery program post COVID-19 must be a kind of climate action-led program. And you think, yeah, great. But then you know we've got massive vested interests in business as usual. People want to go back to the the pre-COVID economy, and they they're people with considerable power and and a kind of sense of entitlement. To the strength they had before COVID, so the airline industry, you know, been lobbying. You saw Richard Branson, you know, lobbying like anything um, for, for bailouts and so on. So that leads us to the question of agency: who, what are the forces that are going to um, are going to actually push for conversion? And I think one of the lesser discussed forces that's mainstream press is the trade union movement. So I want to talk a bit more um, the kind of, my subtitle of the book that I wrote with Dave, and it was really with the Combine, you know, I we attended Combine meetings for several years, and I learned like Andy, I learned more from them than I sort of in, in you know than than I put in through the book. Uh, one of the things I learned is that that it's not just trade unions in some general senses, a specific kind of trade unionism. And I think it's interesting to, to think about what kind of trade unionism is necessary for the kind of power and agency we need to, to achieve conversion. And at the same time, I've been, I look because of this sort of concern with the importance of the role of trade unions as being in a way the knowledgeable people, the people with the knowledge or representing the people with the knowledge and the skill that on which the industry depends. I, I decided to investigate the role of trade unions in this conversion to ventilators that Stuart has given, given a very useful summary of. And so I talked to uh, in the Airbus factory in North Wales. So in my sort of thoughts on trade unionism, I'll draw on that, the Lucas experience, the Airbus experience. And then finally, on a kind of almost like um, negative example, in order to throw into relief the positive examples, I did during the whole debate about Trident, um, you know, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, I went up to Barrow to sit, to meet the, um, the, the trade union conveners there. And uh, although there had been a, a tradition of interest in conversion up in Barrow, when it was Vickers, the Vickers workers were actually always putting forward ideas, and then even when it was BA Systems, there was a a, a kind of committee looking at conversion and alternatives. But but by now, British Airways Aerospace and basically, I don't know whether you'd say bought off, but I mean they provided very good ways to do it. Also. now a multinational, multinational, yeah and multiple Hillary yeah.
0: can i just quickly ask can yeah. you just switch off your video because um i think your internet connection means you're you're stalling the audio is stalling a bit so if you could just okay. turn off your video thanks
4: that's fine yeah okay so they were um they they were able to kind of when there was a, a dip in the demand for Trident, that they could move move their production move their capital uh, elsewhere um and um there was no sort of impetus or pressure on them to look for alternative products uh, by the company that is and so anyway they were a very narrow kind of trade unionism the thing about the lucas combine is firstly that um it saw its members not simply as wage earners but as as knowledgeable people producers as skilled skilled creators Uh, and that was that ran through all its sort of ethics and its it's thinking, um, and it meant that the combine committee was a very democratic body. So that each each plant would give detailed report backs, and the combine knew that no decision had any chance of actually being implemented unless everybody, every shop steward there, could win the support of its very knowledgeable, intelligent members, who you know would would resist simply being given the kind of order from the combine. So there was that sort of um, strategic intelligence, that belief in the knowledge of the members and that tradition, <coughs> sorry, I've got a throat, of listening. Listening to the members. So it was democratic. It was re- recognized its members as knowledgeable people. And also it had a kind of vision and results resulted in things. I mean, in the case of the Lucas um, plan, it was a result partly of the traditions and the time that we're living in you still have the repercussions of the 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 rebellions of 1968 which involved
0: in, you know a whole but we just lost you maybe if you could just repeat what I'm you very, said. i'm very
4: near my router so i don't know quite what it is but anyway. i don't know anyway, hmm. um technology it's not always perfect um so uh, i just was saying that that one reason why the combine committee was so Political in a broad sense, not party political, but kind of had a political a sense of the alternative was possible, was partly the time it was in, just following '68, when, when there was a whole generation of scientists and technologists who didn't take science and technology for granted and saw it as being politically and value driven. Um, and I think also the role of Tony Ben in stimulating the the dynamic of the plan was important. I think Phil would probably agree that you know his his discussion with the stewards, you know, do you want us to need to nationalise aerospace? And then discussing well, nationalisation isn't enough, and that led to a very political discussion. Now, in the case of the um the workers in Airbus, it's been the the, the health crisis. So the workers who are involved in the ventilators, they volunteered. Not all the workers are involved in it, but a large number volunteered to be involved in this because of their belief in the NHS. Um, so that that points to a, a, um, a trade unionism that has got a political vision um, as well as a belief in its members' capacities. And I think you know, if there'd been, I mean, maybe still now we've got a, a with the Labour Party. We got to have a Labour Party that itself has got a political vision. Has got. It's already clear there is some commitment to defence diversification. There is um, a commitment to keep on. And see because
0: oh, a, Hillary, you've gone. Yeah, it's it's kind okay. of frozen now.
4: Okay, so I'm not sure where you've lost me, but I was saying that now we we've got the the chance of a, a Labour Party itself being a stimulus to um a political trade unionism uh, and it's interesting to hear from sam a bit more about the contemporary i'll hand over to sam
0: okay great okay well thanks very much Hilary. sorry about the technical issues um so we, yeah we'll pass over then to sam um who is a member of the new new lucas plan project and also a policy officer at pcs union so over to you sam
5: Thanks Reem, Um, thanks everybody and hello to all you 75 participants out there, it's really great um, not to see you on the call but know that you're there. Um, And it's always a bit hard sort of coming last on a a, a string of obviously very excellent speakers and number of points that have been made, so of course I've been quickly changing everything I was going to say as it's been going along, um, Morphine, to respond to your your comments. And it's a real shame, Hilary didn't catch the end of what you were going to pass over to me and you just faded out then but hopefully we can um pick that up but i think just as just say a little bit the about new lucas plan project which i'm involved with and um phil mentioned we kind of come out of the 2016 40th anniversary conference of the new lucas plan and alternative corporate plan and whilst it was fantastic obviously to celebrate what Bill and Andy and all the people around the New Lucas Plan did, and was very much part of that conference. We were very conscious as well that we didn't want this just to be a sort of nostalgia fest, um, but this was actually to take the ideas and the, the way in which the combine worked forward into the multiple crisis which we're facing today. And um, obviously that was pre. Um, pandemic, but then that's the increase in militarization, climate change, and automation digitalization um, processes and their impacts on work. And as a trade unionist, I've got to say, the, the Lucas plan has sort of been a backdrop to my own sort of industrial history and growing up within the, the trade union movement. And you know, to give away my age, I was 10 when the, the plan was developed, um, published. So. Um, so it's it's always been quite interesting to me and also incredibly inspiring and very privileged now to actually be in touch with people who were involved with it. Um, it, it it's quite incredible. Um, but I think what's been the most disappointing thing to learn is even when we started to get trade union engagement around the 2016 conference, it was a kind of almost, but the Lucas plan failed, you know, it was great. Um, and I, I was actually generally quite shocked that by that because I I certainly don't think the Lucas plan failed because it has had an enduring resonance throughout all this time and throughout our industrial labour history and is constantly referred to Um, but I think yes it it was failed as Phil um, articulated by the Labour Party and trade union bureaucracies in not wanting to take forward those ideas and, and certainly we'll be failing today in the current crisis if we don't again utilize that Um, and it's hard obviously not to talk about anything right now about the the situation we're in and where that's going to go to so a couple of things i just wanted to touch on about sort of some of the current day realities some that link into ongoing trade union discussions and some of the things that we're obviously hoping to come out of this now um obviously there's been a massive economic hit and we're Jobs have been shed right across many, many sectors globally. Um, Hillary's mentioned aviation, that has been literally a grounded sector. I mean, they're down about to 90% of um, civilian flights at the moment. Um, workers are getting benefits from bailouts. From the, sorry, the, the the companies are getting benefits from bailout schemes. Some workers have been furloughed, such as in this country, and you'd have heard today about British Airways getting rid of thousands of workers, so still going forward with redundancy plans. But of course, that's not just happened in the aviation sector, we're going to see it across agriculture, we've seen it across the the retail sectors, and um, obviously within those relationships between the, the Global South and the Global North, where we've outsourced a lot of our production and manufacturing, we've seen a complete collapse of supply chains. Um, and I was just reading an article today around the renewable sector, that all the kind of investment that has been committed so far um, for renewable energy projects around the world, that a lot of those are going to be stalled, just getting the materials and parts, etc., that are needed. Um, So, we've got this massive economic and social crisis, as if we didn't have one already, Um, but of course we are post-austerity, but now this pandemic has hit. And as ever with these um, crises, um, they do present opportunities as well, even though clearly we we don't want a crisis like the Covid crisis, um, to actually start us thinking about the alternatives, but it does offer us opportunities. We had this long debate in the trade union movement around what we call a just transition which in brief, for those who are not familiar with the terminology, is just, um, in short, social protections for workers, consultations with trade unions, um, protection of pensions, retraining, reskilling, just to put it very um, in concise terms, Um, and that's an accepted agreement across the trade union movement, it's in the Paris Climate um, Agreement. But we have very conflicting views across the trade union movement about how we transition our economy out of the fossil fuel economy into a zero carbon economy as we talk about in PCS, a zero carbon economy, and particularly by 2030 and particularly to respond to the climate crisis that was so um, articulated in 2018, I think it is now, October 2018, by the UN Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, of course, linked into all of this, you have the arms industry as well, which is very rarely talked about. And we've had lots of encouraging discussions um, in the, the past year, particularly around things like the Green New Deal. We have that in the UK, there's a European Green New Deal, there's a global Green New Deal discussions. but the armed sector and militarisation is very much left outside of that, and I think somebody had referred to it earlier about Green New Deal plus, it might have been, been Stuart. Um, and I think it's really important that we start talking about the armed sector. And it may not seem so big um, to the UK economy, I mean clearly it's much bigger in the US but it makes us have to also think about um, again coming back to these ideas about what we produce in society and, and why we produce them and how we produce them and linked into very much those ideals of the, the Lucas plan um, workers about socially useful production and I think to come back to today's crisis one thing that we, we've clearly seen everything's been kind of turned on its head but it won't stay like that for long. People keep talking about we won't be going back to normal. Normal will be different. But I think my fear is, and a lot of our fears, that normal will actually start to look very much the same once a lot of as we come ease out of the pandemic in whichever way that happens to be, and we're already seeing a lot of corporations pushing at the door to get back to that normal. So but I think we do have a big opportunity right now, and I'll wrap up conscious looking at the um time there. Um but I think one sector where we have members in the aviation sector we're opening up a big discussion right now about the future of the aviation industry um, and I think there's parallels with that around obviously the the arms industry as well because if if we want to deal with things like climate change if we want to do things like the economic and, um, social crisis that we've got coming up ahead of us which has also been um so starkly laid bare in this this crisis um that we we need to start looking at how we repurpose our whole economy we've always talked not just about energy transitions but a whole economy approach to start asking questions what is the aviation sector for for example most people who fly are actually in the the richest percentage of the population most of the world's population don't don't fly at all Obviously, the, the, we are not. You know, we wouldn't advocate for, for nobody to fly, but that needs to be managed within our climate change um, targets and, and everything else. So I think for us, we've always thought that what we need to do is sit down, we need a planned economy, we need to look at all the things that we need, we need to look at all the things that are important. So right now, very clearly, our health and social care sector is, one, is the most important sector um, that, we have and it's been grossly underfunded we've seen that the government can put billions of pounds into shoring up um, jobs which won't be there for a long time we will have to pay all that back and um, so we have to make sure that where things have been turned on their head in terms of who gives value in society and what social value and who creates the real wealth in society and obviously i've mentioned health and social care but As we know, it's the people working in in the shops, it's actually people still keeping the energy system going, it's all the emergency service and PCS context, we've actually still got most of our members still in the job centres dealing with the huge increase in universal credit, for example. So we need to keep that awareness about where these key jobs are and start challenging about these investments in the armed sector and in other sectors that are actually means that's gonna make it very difficult for our um, continued existence on this Planet, the planet will survive, but um, and take away those threats whether that's nuclear weapons, whether that's climate change, whether it's the increasing threat of pandemics this is not likely to be the last one um, and really start those big conversations both in the trade unions and within our communities and within the political spheres as well. So I've just finished there. Thanks, Sreen. Great,
0: thank you so much, Sam. Um, that was great and really good to hear. I'm glad you brought in. The fact that yeah we have had like all these different jobs and production created but where does that stand in the long term where will that go to um so thanks very much to all our brilliant speakers um so we're gonna stop recording now so that um we can thank you for listening to our med act webinar to find out more about future events please sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.com Dot org forward slash emails or you can visit the medac calendar which can also be found on our website